Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Listen, we need to talk. You've been hearing me make the case for why you should support Canada Land, and I know that for, like, I don't know, maybe a lot of you, the case makes sense. The fact that you're not going to have news, you're not going to have independent media, you're not going to have podcasts if you don't pay for them. I know that you get that, and yet there's something that is, like, standing in the way of you going to patreon.com slash Canada Land and actually hitting the button and supporting us, and... um I can't act like I don't know what that thing is. It's me. I get it. I understand. I know that even to people who choose to spend time with me listening to this podcast, the the idea of, of sending me money is a tough one because of my personality. And I don't think there's anybody on the planet who can commiserate with you about that more than me. I can't turn it off. It's not, I don't have the option. You know, like you do, of just listening to a different podcast. This is this is a 24-7 thing. And it's sort of become my job to be this person. And, you know, I make no apologies because if you have this personality and this uh, propensity to irritate people, why not put it towards something worthwhile? I feel like I found my calling. I know that I have, but it's a lot. It can be a lot. What I need to tell you right now is that that's not a good reason to not support Canada Land. I don't get that money. That money is going to the company, and and the first place it's going to go is to raises for our staff, which we still need quite a bit of support if we're going to get those raises for everybody here, and more support and resources and benefits for them. And then we move on to funding our next big journalistic project. We make every dollar we get go so far, and the Patreon money that we get in, that is for the functioning of Canada Land as a journalistic enterprise. So in summary, I feel you. About the Jesse issue, please support us anyhow. Patreon.com slash Canada Land. Thank you. John Ronson was terribly upset with me after this interview. When I say thank you to him near the end, you'll hear him reply, it's my pleasure. But as soon as we stopped recording, he let me know that it was anything but. He told me that I had ruined his morning. I didn't mean to. I like John Ronson. Quite a bit, actually. He's one of my favorite essayists, and I've admired his radio stories on This American Life for years. 
He's the author of a lot of books you might have heard of, uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats, Them, Adventures with Extremists, and The Psychopath Test. I don't always agree with him, which I saw as a good thing, good reason to have a conversation with him. When we invited him onto the show, we told him that we wanted to talk about his most recent podcasts, which are all about the porn industry and some of the people within it, surprising number of whom are Canadian. And in the most recent of those podcasts, there's a theme that I really wanted to discuss with him, which is his take on public shaming through social media. Generally speaking, he's against it. And he was early to the issue, writing a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed in 2015. His promotion of that book took the form of an impassioned public plea for decency and humanity. It became his cause, his campaign. Here are some bits from his TED talk of that year. These days, the hunt is on for people's shameful secrets. You can lead a good ethical life, but some bad phraseology and a tweet can overwhelm it all, become a clue to your secret inner evil. And it began to feel weird and empty when there wasn't a powerful person who had misused their privilege that we could get. A day without a shaming began to feel like a day picking fingernails and treading water. The great thing about social media was how it gave a voice to voiceless people, but we're now creating a surveillance society where the smartest way to survive is to go back to being voiceless. Let's not do that. Thank you. As you heard, John Ronson told a story in that talk about public shaming that began with Twitter empowering the voiceless, but then devolving into a dangerous tool of an amoral mob, choosing ever more undeserving targets for horrific public attacks. But he said all of those things before the Me Too movement. It seemed to me that things had moved in exactly the opposite direction Ronson feared it would. Instead of shaming finding increasingly undeserving targets, the practice called out the previously untouchable and the most deserving of ostracization. I never imagined that John Ronson was against Me Too, but I wondered if it had changed his early views. His most recent podcast suggested to me that maybe it had. The Last Days of August is about the suicide of the Canadian-born porn performer August Ames, and content warning, this episode will deal with the topic of suicide. And the fact that she died by suicide initially appears to be the result of public shaming on Twitter. But as Ronson examines and investigates it, the truth is revealed to be much more complicated. It turns into a murder mystery and then into something else entirely. Was this Ronson exploring his evolving thoughts on public shaming through a narrative podcast? I tell you all of this now because it's important to me that you know, and that he knows, if he happens to be listening to this, what kind of interview I had in mind. It's a very different one than the one that you're about to hear. We recorded this in his Toronto hotel room, the morning after he performed at the Hot Docs podcast festival. Before we began, he told us that he was exhausted from the night before. After we finished, he told us that he had done a hundred interviews and no one else had so badly misunderstood his work. He also said that perhaps he would later be angry with himself for being so grumpy. On our way out, we tried to discuss with him how upset he still seemed. We wanted to recognize that he seemed to feel like we had somehow ambushed him. He said, yes, 
Yes, that's what this was, an ambush. We apologized that he felt ambushed. And then he said, he never said that. He never said he was ambushed. We were the ones who introduced that word, which was true. I still don't really understand what happened in this interview. I'm open to the idea that I misunderstood or even misrepresented his ideas the way that he feels that I did. But I also wonder if perhaps I raised contradictions in his writing that he hasn't fully resolved yet, and he reacted to that. I guess you can make up your own mind. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Brina Lichty, Alexander Scott Wilson, Jonathan Cornelson, Katie Harmer, Chris Hagerman, Mike Brown, Jamie Olson, and Charlie Martell. I'm Charlie Martell, an attorney in San Francisco, California. I'm interested in what goes on in Canada because about half of my family and half of my wife's family immigrated from Canada a couple of generations ago, and our daughter is in her second year of university in Canada. I support Canada Land and its Spawn podcasts because it adds a lot of texture to the coverage of Canada that we get in the States. It helps fill in some of the gaps for me. Thanks and keep up the good work. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hi, John. Hello. Here we are in Canada, which you've exposed as a global capital in the pornography industry. Yeah, you know, the story that I did last night on stage... Every single one of the main people in the story is Canadian. Everyone. Are you surprised to not see people fornicating in the hallways of this hotel? Is this uh <laughs> Well, I don't think of Canadians as sexual. <laughs> so um so it's more of a surprise to <laughs> to see that they get into porn. Um why did we need a Welshman to tell us that we are a global capital of the pornography industry? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had no, I had no conception of Canada's link to porn, but it's quite remarkable. So, in my story, I told two stories last night. The first half was about the proliferation of Pornhub um, and how that's affected the lives of porn people. And Pornhub's Canadian, isn't from Montreal. And then in the second half of the story, I tell the, I tell a story about a kind of pretty unconnected story of a porn star who took her life, and she and her best friend, and her husband, all, all Canadian, and and her best friend was is also a, a porn star, 
Um, and then the porn uh, director we were embedded with for, for a year or two when I was making The Butterfly Effect is Canadian. It's just all, maybe, I don't know. What, what, I mean, you should tell me. I have no explanation. I'm not sure myself. I mean, I, I was aware when I lived in Montreal that there was a Quebecois porn industry, that there uh, was a, a French-Canadian porn industry, but all the people who you um, have subjects are not from that world. And then the mind geek thing is not really from that world either. So it seems like it's sort of a discreet... Mm. But you know, Mind Geek's Canadian. That's what I'm saying is that they are, the things that you look at are Canadian pornography things, but they're not of that French Canadian pornography world. They're of this bland, desexualized. Yes. Yeah. I don't know anything about French Canadian pornography world. It sounds much more ooh la la. So the Canadianness of all this is one of the few things that's unexplored in your work on porn. (laughs) Do you you have any conclusions or uh, any observations about it? Climate. You know, I think the honest answer is probably just knowing why August Ames moved from Canada to Los Angeles and why Mike Quasar did and so on. I, I, I just think, you know, maybe they felt about L.A. the same way that I felt about L.A. growing up in faraway Cardiff as this sort of mysterious, exciting, you know, mm-hmm. good, good climate um, place. Maybe, maybe it's just it's a place where people from the provinces want to go because it seems so mysterious and exciting. Just your usual small town Maybe, people yeah, I'm sorry attracted to, be, to the... I'm sorry to be disappointing, but I think so. I mean, that's why August moved. I'm sure it's why Mike Guazo moved. Mm-hmm. If I ever moved to LA, um, it would be the reason why I'd move. <laughs> um, the problem yeah. with LA, though, is that it's a very isolating place. This is, this is the conclusion that I came to yeah. in the end. You know, the LA nightmare is, you know, you go there trying to make it. And then you rent some, you know, apartment or house, depending on what you can afford in some suburb, you know, Los Feliz or Hancock Park. And you just never leave your house because there's no incentive. There's no walking culture. Yeah. Um, The whole thing about the entertainment industry in Los Angeles is just waiting. You just wait with very nice interior design. And excellent weather. Yeah, and excellent weather. But for people who are used to community... um... Yeah, that can be really destructive. And also, you know, people are prone, some people are prone to isolation. It's a really bad habit. Um, and LA, I think, is a really terrible place if, if you're that. I kept thinking as I listened to The Last Days of August about the similarities between pornography and journalism. Ooh. You, you, your, your response uh, suggests that that was not an intentional parallel. Um, well, it depends where you're going with it. It might be, and I just haven't caught up yet. Okay. Uh, pornographers and journalists both display very personal things about our subjects for the enjoyment of our audiences. Well, first-person journalists do, not, yeah. not reporters. So you're talking about pornography and people like David Sedaris. I, I'm talking about the work that you do. Yeah. And you're, uh, you're, you're yeah. turning the camera or the, your microphone on, on a subject and, you know... Yeah. Well, in fact, last night, the show I did last night, um, I tell uh, the story about sort of the impact that, t- that doing the last days of August had on me. And that was really personal. And, I, yeah. and I'm usually never that personal, but, but it sort of felt appropriate to do that in that particular story. Because the parallels of like, you know, the impact it had on me weren't dissimilar to, to some of the people in the story. Yeah, it's not the first time for you. You, you. I mean, in fact, the way that I kind of was introduced to you was you kind of popped out uh, from This American Life to me as a, as a novel voice 
in that you were the first, uh, I'm used to this voice of a, I'm your sensitive uh, man who's taking you through this story and I'm just an objective. Um, mm-hmm. And you were the first person to draw into question, can I trust my narrator? Is this somebody whose account of things yeah. is not self-interested? And you played with that in a really novel way. So you say that, that you know, I think you're used to turning things on yourself as well. So you can see it both as the pornographer <laughs> who's who's filming someone and also someone who is mining your own personal, you're, you're exposing things that are personal about yourself. What was the personal um, reaction yeah. you had to covering these things? And can I say, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's that's true. Um, well, basically, the, the I mean, it's it sounds a bit, I guess, glib. And also, it's a bit weird. It's a bit embarrassing because, okay, so like, it's now November, but back in January, I had a little sort of two-week, um, I'm trying to think of the best, uh, I was diagnosed with something called adjustment disorder, which I've got to say is the most boring sounding mental disorder. It sounds like something that accountants should get. Um, it's kind of annoying that, you know, because fi- everyone wants a diagnosis. So finally, when you get one, it's such a shitty sounding one you would have preferred psychopath or <laughs> well i wouldn't well, no, go that far but <laughs> i don't know something a bit better than adjustment disorder yeah, fair so uh um and, and it was really the i mean it was a bunch of things but part but part of it was like um having to grapple with the ethical implications of telling the last days of august mm-hmm. um specifically what do we do about august's husband kevin yeah who was a grieving husband but at the same time people kept telling us um you know everything from crazy conspiracies down to much more realistic you know had some bore some responsibility so what so what do you do with that so so the impact of that it's funny, you know, when I was younger, if I was still 30, I don't think I'd have sweated it so much. But I think my, you know, uh, now I'm in my latter years. Yeah. Um, I think just the sort of ethical implications of that just just weighed so heavily on me. Kevin's reputation was in my hands and he'd just lost his wife. I mean, Jesus. And this was the story that we found ourselves in. And anyway, it, it, it all sort of caved in on me. Um uh, just for a couple of weeks. And I wouldn't normally sort of talk about that kind of thing, except for a few things. First, I'm forever chronicling other people's mental health issues, so it would have been a bit hypocritical not to have um, chronicled my own. Mm-hmm. And two, it's, it felt relevant to the story because it's all about like husbands and wives and how my wife dealt with me when I got sick and, you know... And how people deal with each other when, you know, things are bad. Um, and it's also to do with isolation. I just felt there was lots of parallels between this like, little mini thing that happened to me in January and what was happening in August's life. And the fact that it, it came for me reporting on the story, it just felt relevant to tell the story. I, I want to be explicit about this for people who haven't heard the, your podcast yet, and they should. Um, mm-hmm. But this was a situation where it's kind of familiar to listeners of true crime shows, at least at the beginning, where mm-hmm. we are told... A story, or there's a, an accepted version of the story where August killed herself after being bullied online. Um, she tweeted something about not wanting to do a scene with uh, a, a male porn actor who had done gay work, who mm. had done crossover work, and then she had been publicly shamed for this, and then very shortly thereafter committed suicide. The and, same, the same, like a few hours later. And very early in your telling of this, there's more to it, and 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 everyone is saying, no, you got to look at the husband, and so. Mm. You, you you kick up this cloud of suspicion around this is a murder mystery where we're going to find out whether or not this guy did it. And then you did something 
I guess, to deal with. And it's interesting to hear now that this wasn't just um, an ethical dilemma you faced, but something that was actually like became a problem for your well-being. Mm. What did you say? You said, said this isn't a murder mystery. Yeah. I don't want this to be one of those shows that creates narrative tension by fueling the suspicion that someone might be a murderer, which is exactly what just happened at that moment. But then you diffuse it. But you don't want to take the stakes down of your own story. Yeah. So what you say is, so what I want to tell you is that while we uncover some extraordinary things, devastating mysteries will reveal themselves yeah, maybe and be that was, solved. That was maybe a bit too much. No, it worked wonderfully. But <laughs> this will not turn out to be a murder mystery. So what you did there. Yeah. It was ethical you, you could, because I, I've thought this when listening to other other podcasts where they make you think, oh, the parents did or the husband did. I'm like, if this turns out not to be the murderer, fuck you guys. Yeah. You know? Oh, terrible. I mean, how could you live with yourself? I mean, it's, and people do it all the time in like amateur true crime podcasts. It, it's, I, it's so, but what you did is, is itself a very clever narrative device because what do you mean, John, that this isn't going to be a murder mystery? Like, are you saying he didn't kill her? Then why don't you just say that? What are these devastating mysteries that you're going to solve that are not murder mysteries? So you actually create this new question. Like, what does he mean? And it's a, a brilliant trick that I don't think anyone can ever do again. Like, I, I, you know, did he or did he not do it is a trick that people have been using for hundreds mm. of years and, and they'll continue to do for hundreds of years. But you you found one thing. Yes. And now it's burned. It was quite a juggling act. Uh, <laughs> um well, I mean, the main thing, obviously, was the ethics of it. Like, I couldn't have lived with myself if I was creating narrative tension out of Kevin. And you were actually having difficulty living with yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I think the sort of lead up to my little mini thing um, had begun by the time I wrote that, yeah. that, that voiceover. I mean, it got worse afterwards. That didn't, that didn't lie, make me better, but it was like part of the... If the anxiety was caused by the prospect of what you were doing to this guy, then wh why wouldn't that make it better? To be honest, it's it's probably like, you know, it's if you, well, okay. Um, in OCD, which I don't really have, um, there's a thing called scrupulosity, which is excessive concern for moral issues. So if you're a kid in the American Bible Belt, um, and you have scrupulosity, you might become convinced that like Satan is living inside of you. But if you're a kid in like liberal Toronto and you have scrupulosity, it might manifest yourself with, with you sort of haunting yourself with the possibility that you might shout out something racist. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose that's my way of saying that maybe I was worrying a little bit too much about the story, but doing that disclaimer at the beginning of episode two, I didn't think, oh, well, that's okay now. <laughs> You right. Know, I still had worries. I still had lots of worries. Do Do you think that that's maybe reflective of the wider reality of your work? The work. I mean, we do the same kind of work. Of Of we are looking for people who have mm -hmm. stories, usually of trauma and tragedy. Yeah. I mean, I, I I keep coming back to the pornography thing because there is a, an issue of consent, and we and we try to find subjects who want to be spoken to. But the very act that they are performing their reality for an audience of the supposed intimacy, be it sex or be it Mm -hmm. some drama changes how they present it and then you become the conduit through which they do that. Yes. Um, and they don't always get what they want from you. No. Nor, nor, nor should they necessarily, right? But Yeah. Well, then you've got like whole questions about like journalism, 
Um, like, yeah. is it like? But but of course, if there was no journalism, then we'd all be we'd all be fucked. So there has to be journalism. There has to be you know people have to go in and be critical. You know, look at other people with a critical eye. Well, that's the that's the other parallel with pornography is that everybody uses journalism, but people are kind of disgusted by us for doing it. Yeah, there was yeah. yeah. When I was growing up, there was this show in Britain called Brookside, uh, which was like it was set in Liverpool. It was like a you know like a soap opera. And every time there was a journalist, like all the all the characters in books are like a bloody journalist, oh, all <laughs> these bloody journalists. And yeah, it made everybody hate journalists. Yeah. People hate us. Something that links this most recent podcast of yours to your earlier work is that it begins with a public shaming. Mm. And in your book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I think you take a pretty dim view on the people who... who pile sh- in. Who pile in, the call-out culture, what, what, whatnot. Yeah. But there's a bit of a more nuanced story that is revealed in this podcast where the idea that everybody was upset with August for saying this thing about not wanting to work with this male actor, and then she killed herself. And it turns out to be much, much more complicated than that. Mm. And I wonder if that if that reveals some sort of an evolution of your feeling about call it culture yeah. itself and public shaming. Not really, because I think um, one of the things I, I write about in "Say so You've Been Publicly Shamed" is you know we don't we're we're judging people on a sliver of evidence on the you know the tiniest amount of evidence. Justine Sacco, this woman that nobody's ever heard of, tweets going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. So everybody, you know, while she's asleep on a plane. Everybody in the world is becomes a Miss Marple deciding, um, you know, that they know everything about this woman. Like, like they, mm-hmm. they draw an entire world of, about who this woman is from that one tweet, which turned out to be incorrect. She was trying to be like, I mean, it wasn't gr- a great tweet, but... <laughs> what was incorrect? Uh, she wasn't a racist. She was doing a kind of Randy Newman, South Park type mockery of her own privilege. Right. Um, so it was the opposite. Like her tweet. I mean, I'm not defending the tweet. It was a terribly worded tweet. Mm-hmm. But, but but its meaning was the opposite of what everybody decided that it was. Um, so one of the themes, I think, of So You've Been Publicly Shamed is, you know, in, in actual courtrooms, we have sentencing hearings. You know, when somebody's been convicted... Then other people come along and say, well, you ought to know this about this person. You ought to know that about this person. Uh, Here we are on social media trying to better the justice system because we think it's flawed. And of course, it is flawed. But we're throwing out one of the most important parts of it, which is context. Uh, So the thing about August is that, you know, nobody, nobody knew anything that was going on in her life when when she tweeted, you know, those homophobic tweets. And um, and the fact is, as the programme shows... Ex, you know, extraordinary things were happening in her life. I think that that's an important thing for people to remember now more than ever is that whatever has got you upset online or whatever comment somebody made, they have their own struggle and the, and there's a context that you may not be aware of. Mm. But I also feel like, and, and you wrote So You've Been Publicly Shamed before the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. I do feel like your work has a lot of sympathy for so-called extreme people, and, and writing should humanize people, but you, mm-hmm. you, you humanize Alex Jones, whose own work in the public conversation has been to incredibly harmful to the Sandy Hook survivors, right? Mm. You, you, and before that... Um, I would say that, I, that every story I did about Alex Jones, um, except for the last one, was before 
Sandy Hook was before he was doing that kind of thing. Yes. And the story that I did subsequent to Sandy Hook is much more critical. It's much more damning, and yet it also humanizes him, which is fine because he's a human being. Um, But you have, I think, kind of a predilection or an interest in this person is a caricature of an evil person. You did the same thing with Omar Bakri Muhammad, who was Osama bin Laden's man in London and was involved in calling for kidnappings and murders and things like that. Mm. And I don't think you let him off the hook, but you do show him as kind of this teddy bear as well. Mm. It seems like that's an area of interest of yours. And then when people are calling somebody out, I feel like you're kind of disgusted by the moral righteousness of that. And, and um, Yeah, but I mean, these aren't Me Too stories. These are private individuals getting disproportionately shamed by, you know, millions of people. For their by, public comments. By all, yeah, but by, by all these disparate groups who, you know, unite um, to frenziedly attack somebody who's a private individual nobody knows anything about for a misconstrued joke. For it was, something it wasn't as misconstrued. Go on. I mean, she was both citing her own privilege, uh-huh. but simultaneously she was extending and playing on a stereotype of, of Africa as a diseased AIDS-ridden hellhole, just as uh-huh. the tweets that were upset with August, most of them were simply people saying, this is a very homophobic tweet. Yeah. Like, if you had said, my agent wants me to go have sex with a black porn actor and uh, this isn't fair, or mm-hmm. you know, I consider Jewish porn actors to be dirty and I don't want to do that, I think that we wouldn't have had any hesitation to say, like, that is an absolutely discriminatory, bigoted tweet. But can you show me where I, I'm disagreeing with that? Because I, my... I guess it seems like you're critical of the people, like, simply no, saying you shouldn't be saying that. Can you, because they don't know about her private life and they don't know about her personal struggle. Can you show me where I'm critical of the people who called out her homophobic tweets? In this conversation, you were talking about how people in a frenzy... Yeah, but that pile on. No, I was with, talking with, about Justine Sacco there. Okay, okay. She was making fun of her own bubble of privilege. She was mocking her own ignorance. Yeah, I mean, look, which uh, is a liberal joke. Uh, finding a place between a, a defense and that's of not, satire and that's not me too. That's something completely different. And if you and if you put the two together, yeah, you're creating a, a tyrannical Stasi. But isn't there world. an evolution? I mean, when Lenny Bruce went through every epithet he could think of and 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 pointed at people in the audience and said the N word to people in the audience, that was an incredible breakthrough in in satire and in, and in opening up a dialogue that was necessary at the time. Today, it would be very different. Yeah, but if you put a misconstrued liberal joke together with Me Too, you're talking about a very minor transgression that you're trying to lump in with really serious bad shit. If you do that, then, you know, you're, 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 like, you're undermining... Well, for a start, you're undermining social justice because right. what happened to Justin Sacco wasn't social justice. What happened it was to a, her? Well, she was she was fired. Yeah, um, she was in the wilderness for a year or maybe even more. Uh, you know, the impact on her mental health. My God, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. You know, yeah. people kill themselves. You know, so I, I can tell from your tone that you think that's you know that you think somebody just sort of deserves that for for. Um, or maybe I'm overestimating how you feel about that. But, you know, basically she, um, for, for a misconstrued liberal joke, for a liberal joke mocking her own privilege while she was asleep on a plane and completely oblivious to her destruction, uh, 1.2 million people tweeted about how disgusting, including Donald Trump. Yeah. So, in fact, if you're, um, 
defending the people who piled in on Justin Sacco, by the way, you're defending Donald Trump too, because he was one of those people. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're defending misogynists who, want, who, who called for her to be raped. Um, you're defending, um, you know, people sending death threats to her. There's nobody in my book who transgressed in a serious way. That's not what the book's about. I'm, you know, in t- of course, you know, because I'm a progressive, I'm entirely in favour of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. This is not a book about Me Too or Black Lives Matter. Sure, but how- and also, in yes. the last days of August, I'm not even slightly criticising the people who powered. You know, it's a complete misrepresentation. Well, that was, that was my initial I, point. Was yeah, that, I'm, a, I'm wondering if, yeah, if, if but, your take has evolved, because you actually start with this position that this public shaming might have been a, a, a murderous act, and you realise that reality is a lot more complicated. And, and then, in fact, the public shaming was one ingredient, but but among many yeah. factors. But even if I did think that the public shaming was a was a murderous act, even if I still felt that about August Ames, I'm not... I was not criticizing the people who were rightly annoyed yeah. by her tweet. You know, you're, you seem to be lumping a whole lot of nuanced shit into like one big blah. I guess I'm curious about what I feel is a generalization on your part. Go on. Well, I've heard you say many times about this, 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 this pylon effect. And Uh and when people don't care about the human being behind it, we're both Jewish people, right? So Uh before there was such a thing as social media, Mm. we had the Anti-Defamation League, Mm. which said, you know, it's not good enough for people to just avoid saying kike. We are going to be hypersensitive snowflakes when people talk about globalists or communists or rootless cosmopolitans. We're going to look at the coded language of anti-Semitism. We're going to look at when people talk about the secret interests that are controlling the world. Mm. And we don't have the authority to lock you up or to shut you up, but we have our standards Mm. about how we're going to be talked about. And if you transgress those standards, there's an office that's going to say, that's anti-Semitic and you shouldn't be saying it. And all I see is that that power has now been distributed to people who don't have an anti-defamation league. Mm. So why shouldn't somebody, and are they just becoming a member of a frenzied mob, say to a Justine Sacco, and I'm not defending the misogynists and the calls for her suicide, but if somebody said, you are in your attempt, your, your fumbling attempt at satire, buttressing this idea of Africa as a diseased AIDS-ridden hellhole, and you shouldn't be saying that, and that's the line that we're going to try to 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 instill and publicly protect like is there is there anything wrong with a good public shaming when people finally have the ability to call out the ways in which they're being maligned publicly i you know i'm a i for want of a better word i'm a progressive i'm all, and i'm politically correct i'm all in favor of these things like i i've li- you know i've lived through great changes in the 1970s you know when i was growing up tv was all racist and misogynistic and homophobic and i hated it you know i'm entirely in favor of everything that you just said entirely in favor but justin sacco's tweet was not that and if you're going to destroy somebody when they're asleep on a plane and in fact the fact that she was oblivious to her destruction was part of the hilarity of that night. People were fucking loving the fact we're about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows yeah. she's being fired. That was one of the tweets that night. And then somebody linked to a flight tracker website so everybody could wait for her plane to land so they'd know that, you know, that's torture. That's literally torture. No, that's it's, literally- it's awful. But when you've got a million people doing it, you can find the worst example. Yeah. I think most people who hit like or something were just saying she shouldn't have said that. People were tweeting things like, I, would, I want to go home, but everyone, everybody in this bar is just obsessed with waiting for Justine Sacco yeah. to land. That's what was happening that night. That is not good. No, that, and that is not social justice. That is, as somebody said in, you know, um, 
uh, reviewing my book. That's not social justice. That's a cathartic alternative to social justice. Yeah, and it turns over so, to something so if people become, yeah. it becomes a show. So like, let's see if we can do this to this person. Do you yeah, think we're of course. Still- so, well, that's good. so if you say, well, that's all right too, because we want to call out racism. Of course that's not all right. Yeah, well, thank you. Because it's kind of, but we're it's, talking kind about, of it's kind of offensive but, that you but, say but, these But things. you don't want to lump things in together. So let's not lump in the person who corrects Justine Sacco or, or just criticizes her, which you're certainly free to do, mm. from the person who wants to see her fired or killed, right? No, of course. So the, the, the consequences, well, the, you're not except, destroying her by criticizing her. You're, except, not, you're not, you're not, you know, you're, you're, well, you're, you know, a lot of people fucking kill themselves in that position. And if they don't kill themselves, they get insomnia. You know, I hope that matters to you. I hope it matters to you that people are mentally destroyed for a misconstrued liberal tweet, that they get insomnia, they get agoraphobia. I'm not talking about public figures. I'm not talking about agent provocateurs. I'm not talking about authors. I'm talking about care workers who, who, yes. who make a joke that comes out badly and their life is destroyed. You know, that is not cool. And also, it fucks real social justice. And, and about real social justice, I'm in entire agreement with you. Yeah. I've been publicly shamed for stupid things I've said. Have you? Yeah. Are you okay? No, I, yeah, I didn't kill myself. Glad, glad to see you didn't kill yourself. You know, you're dealing with really serious shit here. You know, yeah. kids are killing themselves. Uh, and, you know, the impact. I've met people, you know, with, with depression, with extreme anxiety, with insomnia, you know, this ruins people, and that's not social justice. Social justice I'm entirely in favor of. I love the fact that we're living in a in a more... How are you drawing that line so so distinctly? I mean, I feel like you're, you're casting well, me as somebody yeah, well, of course, who doesn't you know. care about those consequences. I, I'm merely saying that there's two different interests to be balanced here. That Yeah, so, and me too. I, I, I also feel that. Yeah. What's annoying me so much is that you're attacking me for something that isn't true. In the book, I draw these distinctions. I, you know, in, in the in the afterword of the paperback edition of the book, I write about all of this stuff. I, I, I write about Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter had become a thing by then. And I draw the distinctions. If you don't draw the distinctions, you are punishing people the same punishment for wildly differing crimes. How do you... And, and do you really want that? Do you want somebody to get fucked in exactly the same way for... Uh, stealing a loaf of bread or killing someone. No, and I think that this is a, a new social force. The fact that we can do this is like, uh, we, we have no right. mechanism so for can this. I, can, so, so can I say to you, so can I say to you, Sacco, haven't they? Yeah, can I say to you that I think, given that, of what you just said, I think you should think harder about it because I don't think you're thinking hard enough about well, it. I'm, when you think that Justine Sacco's punishment was justified because of Me Too and Black Lives well, Matter. Well, now you're putting words in my mouth. Well, that was basically what you were saying to me. I mean, you know, people can sort of see whether I'm over... I'm overselling that point or not. Well, if in fact I, I drew an equivalency, which I don't think I did, then let me refine it now. I, mm. I, I don't think so. Good. I don't think so. Good. Because I feel the same way you do. You're, you're, you're attacking me for something that isn't true. I'm, I, a, I'm, a, I'm a big supporter of, of social justice. I'm not a right winger. Well, and, and, and I'm not one of those anti-woke, you know... Um, Agent provocateur types. That's not me. I'm a, I'm a progressive. I'm, from, I'm on the left. I'm the same as you. Again, th- those are not words I would ever use to describe you. It's just I felt that that's sort of basically where you were veering. N- it's just the question that I asked. From a place where I think you were very early and prescient in identifying this phenomenon and 
I saw this clip of Jordan Peterson crying when he was talking about how it feels to have a bunch of people digitally outside of your door with 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 pitchforks, and he he, he was mocked because, of course, he's done that to other people. Yeah, well, exactly. But but he's uh, right. But, but, but also, he's right. Yeah, but also, you know, I'm not writing about you know in that book, I'm not writing about people like Jordan Peterson. I'm not writing about people who put themselves out there as these kind of agent provocateurs and then sort of get all upset when you know. I mean, I'm not talking about Jordan Peterson in particular. Well, your frankly, problem is your talent is 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 that because you were early to this because you were prescient. You, yeah. I think, wrote material that suggested to me, as as your reader and listener, a certain disgust with the pylons and mm-hmm. where your sympathies lied seemed seemed very clear to me. And I was my question was if that's changed as we have entered into these m- moments where really important social movements have been born out of the fact that people actually have a, a platform from which to call things. But that's exactly what I felt at the time, and in fact, I write about that in the book. There were things that were certainly, um, you know, I was excited about the fact that when um, a columnist for the Daily Mail wrote something homophobic and then Twitter would mobilise and get advertising pulled from the Daily Mail and that would stop people being so homophobic in columns in the Daily Mail, I I I was fine with that. There's like a system that could kind of work there. Yeah, but then it became, you know, then as I say in the book, we got so into it, you know, we fell in love with our new power so much that we, our standards slipped. And and, and, it, and so we started going for people who didn't deserve it. Yeah. And that is what happened. Is it? Yes, of course it's fucking what. Of course it's what happened. I feel like something else has happened since. Like, I, I, I look, what I was... And social movements like me too, Black Lives Matter, of course I'm 100%. I, I, I'm, I love it. I'm, I'm massively applauding of it. It's like, it's, 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 but that's not what my book was about. When I have stumbled and said something that triggered a response from people that got filed under a category, well, that that's, uh, has implications of racism, has implications of sexism, and I would uh, get dragged on Twitter... Uh-huh. I had sleepless nights, anxiety, I felt terrible, and I absolutely felt a, a sense of um, defensiveness and self-pity. When I was criticized in that way, the, yeah. because being accused, uh, especially for white men such as ourselves, it's like, it feels like that kind of could take all of your power away to be to be, to be be publicly uh, dragged as a racist or a homophobe or something like that. Like, it really feels very threatening. And I feel like, I just as you were saying earlier, I'm on yeah. your side. Why are you putting, putting a, a black hat on me? And as those feelings... We're kind of moving into a, a, a place where there's a bit more familiarity with this territory, and we're, and we're learning how to deal with these. Well, things. actually, I think honestly, I think people have become a little bit like you know hospital superbugs in a way. People are, you know, and, and everything you just said about how you learned from your shaming, you know, that's fine. I'm not critical of that at all. What's it been like for you when you've found yourself criticised online? Yeah, you know, I, I think I feel I went through the same trajectory that you just described. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, it was good for you in a way. Well, it depends whether it was fair or not. Over time, you find the parts that are legitimate. Yeah, and you hope to learn from them. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, but the problem is, it's a little bit, you know. Well, there's a yeah, but I mean, if if if, if all shamings and um, results of shamings were as beautiful and halcyon as the way that you and I just described it, then everything would be okay. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And one thing that's happening um, is just look at Ralph Northam, the Virginia governor, um, yeah. who was caught with, you know, blackface photographs. And he said, well, I'm not, I'm not quitting. 
um, because what what's happening, and obviously you see Trump doing it, and you see all of Trump's people doing it. You know, get over it. You know, we're assholes. Get over it. This is what we do. Get over it. And this is a, this is another byproduct of our shaming culture. It's like you know, it's like the um, bugs have become resistant to shaming and have turned into hospital superbugs. And that's another real-world consequence of what's happening. The Trump presidency is a consequence, to to some extent, of, of all of this culture. What's well, um, a backlash to it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, so, as I say, like, you know, you and I have had that experience where we've been unfairly shamed, but we've taken the good bits and thought, OK, I get that, I'll learn from it. That's great. But, you know, not everybody's experience is like that. The people who commit suicides experience isn't like that. And also the the transgressors who then double and triple and quadruple down and then take over the world uh, in the most heinous ways mm-hmm. um, is another consequence of it. So, you know, d- don't be too halcyon. No, it, it, it's an ugly and, and cacophonous process. Mm-hmm. And, and complicated. And, and this is why I object to you know some of your earlier questions because it felt like you weren't and maybe i'm wrong and you know maybe you know when people listen back to this they'll figure out if i'm right or wrong about this and you know i could be wrong but the way it felt at the time when you were saying those things was that you were taking a nuanced argument and and making it a bit too black and white well i'm glad which which you're not doing now i'll I'll have to listen to the playback to find out myself because it's serious shit. I mean, you know, public yeah, shaming totally, on social media has changed the I, world in very, you know, in some good and some bad ways. And so you have to, you have to not be didactic about it. It's a, it's not a subject to be didactic about. If we have a disagreement, perhaps we don't. But I think if we did, it would come down to this. I see this as a realignment of power, mm-hmm. where we have. People who never had a voice before finding finding a voice, and that voice actually has consequences. Hmm. I don't think that it, all of those consequences are great, and I'm not cheering for every every outcome of that. But I think that finally, people have a seat at the table who never did before, and there is a, some sort of a negotiation that is taking place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, if I'm not mischaracterizing your position, everybody needs to calm the fuck down. Mm-hmm. And stop using that voice the same way that they've been using it and be much more careful about the consequence of their voice because no, you have no idea what that person's personal life is like or, or what led, led to that. No, you know what I think? So tell me if I've got you wrong there. I, I, I No, what I think is that I think the truth is both of those two things that you just said combined. Thank you, John. No, it's my pleasure. You know, uh, um, I did a thing a couple of years ago in Australia with Naomi Klein and, and a couple of people... Um, said at the time, because my book had just come out, um, you know, oh, I'm surprised, you know, Naomi Klein shames people all the time. You know, what are you doing sharing a bill with Naomi Klein? And I said, well, you can't, you can't have her argument without my argument, and you can't have my argument without her argument. So, you know, this conversation has reminded me a little bit of that. Um, I'm, I'm not in disagreement with anything you said at all, not at all. And, you know, the, the, um, um, the moving way that you described about the realignment of power, I mean, total agreement with and I also feel very happy to live to be living through this time of social change entirely you know my my one truck with you is that I feel that you were portraying my views my my views which actually are not that dissimilar to yours at all just maybe a little bit more um holistic Mm -hmm. um as being something different than what they actually are That was your Canada Land episode. 
And it's crowdfunding month, so once again, if you like what we do here, please support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. We really do rely on your support. You can email me at jesse at CanadaLandShow.com. I read everything that you send us. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com, where you'll find a new episode of Oppo, or listen to last week's episode, which is like this interview with Lisa Raitt, which is the most candid interview with a conservative politician I have ever heard. Jordan Cornish is our producer. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. I'm going to say it one more time. If you want ad-free versions of our podcasts or keychains or t-shirts, or if you just appreciate what we do and want to be a part of it, support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. And thank you.